She was in an inner city school in Los Angeles. And she says to me, Miss, how do you expect me to care about the Pythagorean theorem when I almost got raped on my way to school? What's up? My name is CJ Finley, and this is the Thrive on Life podcast. I started a brand called Thrive on Life to help other mission-based people, brands, and businesses thrive. Each week, we interview people on topics of business, health, relationships, mindset, and much more to help us thrive in all areas of life. If the messages in this podcast resonate with you, but you're still feeling a little bit stuck in actually implementing these ideas, I'd love to help you on a more personalized level or connect you with somebody that can. So please reach out. Also, if you've got a friend who you know could benefit from hearing this episode, please share the love with them. My goal is always to spread positive impact through the sharing of knowledge, and I would be honored if you could help me achieve this goal. Today's guest is Dr. Mona Kiani, the founder and CEO of Educate with Purpose. As a former math teacher, teacher trainer, coach for administrators, and director of partner success at various ed tech startups, Mona is passionate about transforming the field of education with engaging real-world learning experiences for students and the community that result in social action. And after 15 years of experience in education and in ed tech, both locally and internationally, she decided to take things into her own hands and started her company, Educate with Purpose. With her company, she's asking the tough questions such as why are we doing anything that we are doing when it comes to education? At this point, everything needs to be re-examined and aligned to a new purpose that will ultimately serve the world. As someone who is also passionate about education, this conversation with Mona was enlightening and motivating in so many different ways, and I am so excited for you to feel her passion while you listen. Now let's jump into the combo and learn how we can do our part to build a better world with Dr. Mona Kiani. What is up, Thrive Fam? CJ Finley here, back with another episode of the Thrive on Life podcast, and I'm very excited for today's show because our guest is going to bring a breadth of knowledge in an area that I am super passionate about, education. Welcome to the show, Dr. Mona Kiani. How are you doing today, Mona? Thanks, CJ. So good. So glad to be with you today. Yeah, it's uh, it's taken a little bit to get you on here. We had some we had some road bumps in our scheduling and some uh, some things that di- that came up that we weren't expecting. But I'm glad to have you here today. Glad we can make it work, and very excited about this conversation. When I was reading through some of the notes before the show, I was reading something you wrote, which was you want to help make a revolution in education. I was mm. hoping you could describe to me what do you mean by that. Mm. I'm so glad you asked. So I was a teacher for 10 years, and I taught in inner city schools in L.A. I taught internationally at a private school in Chile and then very innovative schools in uh, San Diego. And the one comment one of my students said to me once, this was my first year teaching. She was in an inner city school in Los Angeles, and she says to me, Miss, how do you expect me to care about the Pythagorean theorem when I almost got raped on my way to school? And I was like, damn. And I was a math teacher, and I was like, I don't expect you to care. And so that began my journey as a first-year teacher. I was, what, 22 years old. And I was like, why are we doing any of this? What's the point of education? And are we really serving the kids? Are we serving the world we want them to live in? Are we building the future we want to live in? So instead of me sharing just to start off what I think an education revolution might look like. I'm going to turn around and ask you, what do you think is the purpose of education? 
Wow, you're putting me on the spot here. First <laughs> off, that was a hell of a way to start mm. this. That was uh, that got me thinking a lot of it, a lot of different areas, and it honestly brought up a feeling in me that I had in college because I went to for a time I went to a place called Rutgers Camden, and Camden, New Jersey, is one of the most disenfranchised, underprivileged areas in the country. I think it was ranked like most deadly place to live, like a decade ago, 20 years ago. Mm. Um, and you could tell the stark difference of like where the college was. And if you went a couple streets down the opportunity of the different people there. Mm. And I remember vividly being on a soccer field and like little kids breaking in to our cars, like that were lined up on the field, wow. literally live at practice. Like one time someone threw a, br- <laughs> a kid threw a brick through, um, my buddy's car window mm-hmm. took his wallet, took his school books. They found his school books on the on the ground. We knew it was kids because like the school books were actually the most valuable thing that they took, and they didn't understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason I'm telling that story is because I'm a huge believer in the fact that education, our environment, is really going to tell what our future looks like. So mm. those kids were only mimicking what they saw. Were they bad kids, quote unquote? No. But like, unfortunately, the outside world would view that kid and scold that kid, but he's just mimicking the role model that he sees. Mm. So what would I have been like if that was my role model? I was only following what I saw. My parents working hard and saying, hey, grades matter. Working hard at sports matters. Being Mm -hmm. kind to others matters. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have that, Who's to say that any one of us could have grown up in that environment and be who we were? We don't know that. Mm. So I think a lot of us pass judgment on people that might not be acting in a way that we agree with, Mm -hmm. but we haven't lived their lives. We haven't seen what they have seen. So when I think of education and a revolution in education, it's giving those kids in Camden, New Jersey, the ability to see outside of their bubble Mm. and... I've thought through this mm-hmm. free Wi-Fi. Like how do we get Wi-Fi in the homes of the underprivileged where they can see outside because they might not have the role models in their home mm-hmm. or in their surrounding area, but this is where TikTok and and Instagram could be highly beneficial mm-hmm. where they can attach themselves to someone that looks like them, talks like them, mm-hmm. but is quote unquote successful in a different way other than what they see on the streets or what they're going through in that environment. And the cool thing is that's where I do align with somebody that lives a completely different life or grew up in a completely different life because even I find myself, that's how I'm reeducating myself. Mm. I'm only instilling the best into me, which is when I went into the standard education Mm. system, I only saw what was direct, like, Five feet across from me, five to the right of me, five feet to the left of me. Mm-hmm. That's all I thought I could be or all I thought I could do. Mm. But then with Instagram and YouTube and mm. like no matter who you are, you can look into those ways. So that's a long-winded way of saying opening Pandora's box mm. for people that might not be as privileged as some other other people out there. Mm. 
Yeah, that makes so much sense. Just really looking at the environment, how that shapes us. And there's plenty of research that actually talks about this. We know that if a kid's getting bussed into a more affluent neighborhood, that their likelihood of succeeding is much higher than that same kid being in an underprivileged neighborhood. So we definitely know the environment affects us. I love that example, how social media has actually expanded that and just the tangible um, kind of idea you have of providing free Wi-Fi. What could that do to give people access and equity in education. And I love uh, just thinking about kind of what is the center of something or what's what actually determines our outcome. I don't know if you're fami familiar with Dr. Bruce Lipton, and he is all about epigenetics. And he talks about the center of a cell is not actually its nucleus. The nucleus doesn't make the decision of what's going to happen. The center or kind of like the, the part of the cell that makes a decision of what's going to happen is its environment. Because you put that cell in a Petri dish with a particular environment versus a different environment, that's actually what's going to determine what happens. So the same thing with a, imagine if that's true of one cell, then imagine a human being. The compilation of cells, what happens when we put them in particular environments. But what I find particularly interesting is having worked in various environments. So I kind of described the three environments. In LA, it was in the hood. Like, kids were like, miss, don't walk to your car by yourself. I'd have to get escorted in my car. There were shootings all the time. My first year teaching, I had 55 students in a class. We I only had like 30. one classroom. One classroom, one bungalow. I had 35 desks, if you can imagine. So I So where's the extra 20 kids? And go? I remember getting my roster, and I just start crying. I'm like, what? Like, how, how am I going to help this many students? Where are they going to sit? And I had one tiny window, like maybe the size of like the back of this couch. And it had bars on it. There was tagging all over the walls, helicopters constantly going over. And in my first year, in the first three months that I was teaching, we had two lockdowns and a shooting. Uh, one of my students, uh, sorry, three lockdowns, two stabbings in a shooting. One of my students got stabbed in the head. He came, dropped off his backpack. Hey, miss, going to go to the bathroom. And then he got jumped in the bathroom, stabbed in the head. What never grade saw him was again. this? this he was a ninth grader, and I taught mostly ninth and tenth graders. Wow. Um, and eight of my students got pregnant my first year teaching. Again, mostly ninth graders. So just to kind of paint that picture of what life was like in inner city schools. And when I said what am I going to do with 55 students in a class? I actually had uh, about 65 on the roster, 55 showed up. And I remember uh, an administrator told me, she goes, don't worry, more than half of them will drop out. And so that was already the mindset. And, and she wasn't wrong, actually. There was about 1,800 students that came in freshman year and only about 900 made it across the stage by senior year. So that was the statistic of a 50% attrition rate. And so I was always thinking, okay, this girl, Anna, who asked me the question, how do you expect me to care about the Pythagorean theorem? So I said to myself, well, it's not just access to education. It's not just standards mastery. I mean, we all know that, right? Like, we memorize facts for a test. We regurgitate it. We take the test. We all forget it. Frankly, I didn't know half the stuff I had to teach as a math teacher until I went and relearned it because I forgot it. I mean, I, I got through the highest levels of math. I took calc in high school and then again in college. Didn't remember any of it. But then when I went back as a teacher and I was relearning it and learning how to teach it, I was like, that's what they were trying to teach me this whole time? But that's not how we use school. That's not how we have used school in the past. And 
frankly, currently how it's being done. So I thought to myself, it's not enough for me to just teach Anna these standards to go to college, right? She's not connecting to it. So I said, okay, the next stage of my evolution of what is the purpose of teaching was they need to learn this stuff so they can better understand the world around them. And that I'm going to kind of take you through the, to the kind of apex of the evolution of education. But that was my next step. I was like, okay, how do I take this content and help Anna better understand her world? And I taught mostly black and brown students at the time. So I did a lot of things around social justice. And I was like, how can we use math to look at statistics and data and better understand kind of what's going on in the world around them? And I did that. And I was like, this is really great. You know, I got a lot more buy-in. Anna was excited, you know. I mean, and those kids had it rough. Like their walk to school, you talked about throwing bricks at the in the windows and stealing things. I had kids who were like, Miss, sorry, I got jumped by a gang and they took my books. Like I can't do my homework. Very different than the my dog ate my homework story. You know, totally different reality. But still I was like, okay, but why? Like why is it important for Anna to better understand the world around her? And So, so then she I, can change her world. Ah, so that was my next kind of realization. I was like, it's not enough for her to just understand, like, shoot, like, yep, I'm Mexican and I'm at a disadvantage just literally walking through the world as a Mexican in this environment, talking about environment, I'm at a disadvantage. What can I do about it? And I think, and so that journey is going to continue, but at this stage in my teaching, I then moved to uh, Chile in South America and I taught in an international private school. And my students were the kids of diplomats. They were super international, very privileged. So nobody had these gang issues. Nobody had the, you know, someone's going to steal my books or I'm worried about getting jumped on my way to school. But even then, those students also, so you're talking about environment. So so I'm going to turn the question back on you right now. So they're (laughs) in an, I know you probably like last time you're my guest, but no, this is amazing. (laughs) Keep, keep rolling with it. Even then. The students had more similarities in their struggle connecting with education, connecting with the purpose of any of this, right? Their parents were saying, you got to get into Stanford and Harvard and Yale. So you have that kind of cultural capital at home. All their parents had gone to college, whereas in the inner city school, most of those kids, they would be the first in their family to go to college. Their parents maybe made it through elementary school, okay? So now you have affluence, you have access, you have wealth, you have all the books, all the Wi-Fi, all the laptops. These kids were far wealthier than any of the teachers there. And even then, they were struggling to connect to education and actually higher rates of depression and suicidal tendencies. So if, and this is the large narrative, is if we just get access to these kids, if they just had Wi-Fi or Chromebooks or laptops or books or tutors, every one of these kids had a personal private tutor, paid them a bunch of money. But they were like, what's the point of any of this? And it, and I still went by, you're learning this to better understand the world around you to do something about it. But what, what then, why then, if you're in that environment, what is it about that then that still keeps people from caring or feeling connected to their education what are your thoughts like a purpose so Mm. for the first group that you described 
Maslow's hierarchy of needs, their hierarchy of needs wasn't met. So they're not too worried about education because how are you going to worry about education where like some of them are like, I don't have any food to eat today. My parents aren't going to provide that for me. I got to go figure out how I'm going to eat today. Mm -hmm. So what's the point of showing up to school if like I don't even have food to eat, right? Any human in that scenario is going to choose food over learning that day. Mm. The second half is all their needs are met Mm. and they're just floating in the space where all my needs are met to force somebody to want something more than the needs they already have is very difficult. So like a good example is, is animals. Mm. If they, they do testing with mice, right? If you feed the mouse every single day at the same time, mm. you're conditioning it to that's all it wants mm. and all it needs. And it's never going to go search for food. Mm. But if you feed the mouse one day, and then you go a couple days without feeding it, what's that mouse going to do? It's going to start searching for food. Mm. So the problem with the education system that I have found, mm. and I experienced this, is you have polar ends of the spectrum. Like few people end up in the middle is what I, what I notice. I don't know if it's still like this. Mm-hmm. But you have kids who are on the spectrum of their hierarchy of needs aren't met. And then you have kids on the spectrum of most of their needs are met. But then what do we do with those kids? Because for me, I look back at my school, like it was too easy for me. Mm. My needs were met. Going to class was easy. Getting my grades was easy. But I look back and I'm just like, man, I wish there was somebody there to like challenge me to mm. to be better, to have a purpose, to do more. And it didn't have to be in the school. Like mm. that's the problem. It's just like when I got done my work, I should have been – planting in the school garden or like doing something that was more aligned with me, which is using my hands, building things like mm. not sitting in a classroom. And once I was done my work sleeping, like that is such a waste of energy. Mm. And I don't, I think on top of that, it's your parents are under so much stress. So I have to look at like when I'm thinking education, like the top down mm-hmm. of I think because now both parents are working and like there's added stress in the environment, schools are now becoming more like babysitting Mm. than they are like focused on education and to fix that because I'm always a solution driven person. Mm -hmm. I honestly think the solution is half the time at school should be purpose driven. Mm. Like what is our purpose here on earth as Mm. human beings? Mm. It's not to get grades. Like Mm -hmm. it's not right. And then that once you find that purpose, I think we lend a hand to the person to the left of us, the person to the right. And to flip this question back on you mm-hmm. is when you're in both of those different environments, mm-hmm. how did you grade, quote unquote, <laughs> those individuals? Because mm. it's such stark differences. Like how can you grade somebody mm-hmm. to take this test if they're showing up and they're like, I just got jumped. Mm-hmm. But then on the other end of it, how do you grade somebody that's trying to get into Stanford and might not be there, but mm-hmm. they're so overly stressed and so trying mm-hmm. to please their parents, mm-hmm. but you as a teacher are like, maybe this just isn't for you. Mm-hmm. Maybe you need to like shuffle to the right or shuffle to the left. How mm-hmm. did you balance those two worlds? It's such a good question. And then the next question is, do we even need grades? Mm. And I've worked in a school where we're like, you know what, we're going to, we're going to not only do away with grades, it'll kind of be a pass, no pass. 
we also at one point, and so this was at High Tech High in San Diego, which is a super innovative uh, project-based learning school where people from all over the nation come and we're constantly being observed. People are trying to learn how we do things. We even got rid of grade levels at some point. And so instead of saying you're a ninth grader and this is your curriculum and then by the time you have to show mastery here before you can move on to the next, now it's like kind of fluid. Like, okay, well, we all kind of, wherever we're, we start, the key thing is really progress. Isn't that like really mm. the journey in life? It's like wherever you are, we just want growth. Not, you know, judging everybody by the same standard. Now these standards were created in the 1800s and the purpose of them was the university system was like, okay, we have Bob and we have Billy. So that of course it was all for white guys. So we have Bob and we have Billy. How do I compare them to each other to decide who to admit? And that's why the standards were created. And that's why kind of having these siloed classrooms were created. But we know that that's not serving our world because that's not indicative of what it's like in the world. So think about in corporate, right? So you might have like a quota if you're a salesperson, you have to hit a particular target. You might have KPIs. So think about how grading exists in the world that we live in. Think about how the work environment, you're never just in one subject. You're not in one grade level. You have to work as a team. You have individual responsibilities. You have team responsibilities. So really looking at what would best serve our students for the future and then thinking about, yeah, I might be trying to grade one student from an inner city school and then I look at an affluent school who has all the resources. How do I grade them? Then you look at the charter schools I worked at and I had both in the same classroom. So those were like super diverse schools. So it's easier actually when you have homogenous groups and you're grading them because it's like more or less close. But when you have this super diverse group, can I just grade someone on progress? And then frankly, does my grading matter more or their own self-assessment of their progress? That is a great question. And so if you think about it, we need to question every single one of these paradigms because we've been spending years. I mean, I just went to an education conference and I was so disheartened to see that they were saying the same thing that they were saying freaking 15 years ago when I started teaching. And I was like, are you kidding? We have not progressed at all. Like, this is embarrassing. Well, the best leader, the best teachers and the best leaders leave. That's the thing. Okay, so and that's a like whole other <laughs> around around the pond is everyone that just stuck it out. They all have, they're not they're not innovators. Like if they if they were innovating, they would have left the pond. And the frustrating thing for me, because the one thing that just stuck out to me mm. is working in teams. Mm -hmm. The number one, like I don't have a problem with grades per se, okay. right? I have a problem with how we go about getting the grade. Yeah, getting the grade is you're going to take a test alone. When the fuck in reality of the world, if you're in any corporation, whether you work at Burger King or Apple, you're working with people. You're not just doing your job and based on one little test is how you're calculating the score of that. Right. Like if you're the burger flick flipper at Burger King and you're not working with the person that's bagging and nobody gets the burgers in the bag to the drive-thru, you're both at fault. It's right. not just you. So – the problem I have with the education system is why isn't why aren't our grades more revolving around how are we communicating with our team? Mm -hmm. Like what are our strengths in a team? What are our weaknesses in mm -hmm. a team? Right? Take a test as a team. And a lot of my interviews, like coming out of college, 
in some of them, they would put us in a like it was called like a think tank type mm, of environment cool. where you like you got placed with other people interviewing at the company. So like 15 people are interviewing and like you got put with five other people and mm-hmm. like they'd have a row of judges like judging you, watching you interact in a team trying to solve a problem on a board. Yeah. And immediately I was like, why wasn't school like this? Mm. Like our grade should have been live. Like the teacher should have been watching all of us. Right. And they, what they do is they put you under a stress test. It's like you have a certain time limit. So you start seeing how like some people start getting aggressive mm-hmm. when the time runs out. And then other people start getting really quiet and just like, I don't care anymore. Like you can do whatever. So you see how people truly interact in that environment. And right. that's more of a telltale sign of who's going to succeed and not succeed. What's up, guys? I'd like to take a second to thank you for tuning into this episode with Mona. I hope you are loving this conversation so far. But before we get back into it, I have an opportunity I want to tell you about. As we all know, life is hard. It can beat you down, have you feeling low, and make it seem like you are alone. I'm here to remind you, though, that the most worthwhile journeys, they are not meant to be taken alone. And right now, you have the ability to take action and join others, including myself, on the mission to make every heartbeat count. Head over to cjfinley.com and sign up for my daily newsletter where I will be giving you information, impactful stories, tips and tricks, and access to a community who are focused on making an impact above and beyond themselves. You'll also have the perk of exclusive giveaways, potential shout outs, and possibly even some collaborations. The least that will happen is you will walk away into every day with an extra pep in your step. My promise is that I will always do my best to help you thrive on life. And this newsletter is one of the best ways for me to help you do so. So if you're looking to get to the next level of your life, connect with like-minded individuals and have a daily dose of info that will help you thrive, sign up for my newsletter at cjfinley.com. Now let's get back to the conversation with Dr. Mona Kiani. Which leads me to my next question Mm -hmm. is when you are that teacher Mm -hmm. that no matter what environment you're in mm-hmm. and you're grading your different students, mm-hmm. how did you handle the, I guess it's stress mm-hmm. of not truly knowing the impact that you were making on each student's life? Because mm-hmm. I've taught for the past two years um, teen entrepreneurs mm-hmm. and th- the thing that waited on me was when they would tell me personal things and how they got jumped or mm. whatever that is, that didn't happen in my circumstance, mm. thankfully, um, because I don't know how I would deal that, handle that. Um, <laughs> but the struggle that I had was how do I keep that even keel and don't weight anybody above the rest? So mm. how did you do that, especially with 55 kids? Mm. I think it would be anti-human to try to be super even keel. Mm. So I think being vulnerable and being authentic and showing the humanity of like, I'm imperfect too, is part of the game, right? I remember a student. How many teachers actually do that though? That's Uh, the question. So, okay. So I have a a couple of thoughts. What you, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to share this, this story before I'm too embarrassed too. So I remember one time in Chile, this, um, this student wanted to go to a Britney Spears concert and she was going to miss my class. And I was like, hell no, <laughs> like you were not missing my class for a Britney Spears concert. I don't know why I was so like, if you miss my class, like, you know, it's the <laughs> end of the world. 
for a Britney Spears concert, but I remember the next day she comes into class um, and I was like, you know, if someone didn't miss my class, okay, whatever, but it's your responsibility to get the notes from a, you know, a friend, get caught up, come and ask me questions, like take initiative, take responsibility for you choosing to miss class. It's different if you're sick, I have a little bit more empathy, but and sympathy, but if you're like deliberately missing, like, come on, I want, I was huge on teaching like responsibility and, and some of these like life lessons Ownership. and discipline. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember saying to her the next day when she, she came, or it was like a couple of days later, they had a quiz. It was on the topic she missed. She didn't come ask me any questions. I asked her in class, like, did you get the homework? Did you get the notes? Do you have any questions? She's like, no, miss, I'm fine, whatever, whatever. And then when she did really poorly on the, the quiz, <laughs> God, I'm so mean. I was like, did Britney Spears teach you how to do that? <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I didn't even think twice, like, how will that affect the kid? And it was only at the end of the year that I later learned that, I, and I had even forgotten that I said that, but she had let me know that that was like a scarring moment for her. So there are those like teacher slip ups, you know, that we have, like I was human and I was sarcastic and I was like, I totally disapprove of you doing this. Um, kind of like the stern mom look. And then there's the stories of, you know, kids telling me long after we forget, literally I had a kid write me this, long after we've forgotten all the, the math formulas you taught us, we'll always remember the life lessons you taught us. And I still to this day, I'm friends with my students on social media now, and my oldest student is 33 years old, which is like, wow. And I mean, most of them have like families, kids. And back when I was 22, they're like, miss, you're getting old. You better hurry up and have kids. It's so funny. So I get students reaching out to me all the time and just saying, you have no idea the way you, you had an impact on my life. You changed my life. So you had posted this quote the other day that it's not about what you harvest each day. It's about the seeds that you plant. And teaching couldn't be, you know, closer to that particular sentiment. So you really don't know good and bad. And I'm, I imagine, I'm not a parent, but I imagine parents the same way. Like kids hold on to things that you've said to them. I think to your earlier point about this concept of holistic education, this concept of you were judged in that, that interview as a team and how do you react and respond to other people? How do you work in a group? How are you managing your own emotions in that moment? Yes, an adult is going to have an impact on your life and for better or for worse, you know, and I'm sure I did both at different points in time, but also how do we teach so much self-love and trust in oneself that no matter what someone is sharing with me, I can still be on this journey. I can still be blossoming. I can still turn inward. That's a big part of what I'm doing in the company that I'm creating. So there's various facets. One of them is this concept of understanding that each child has innate knowing. There's something, call it divine, spiritual, energetic, mysterious, call it whatever you want to call it. But every single human being has this, this power and this kind of magic within them, which leads to their purpose. And they, they kind of look within to see, why am I on this planet? And along that vein, they have a divine understanding that there is there are other creatures on this planet that I am one and the same with. 
right? We have that understanding. When we are born, we gravitate towards other living things as energetically like one and the same. We don't have this, oh, you're black and I'm white, so boundary, right? We understand that we have that innate knowing. We have an innate knowing that life is about presence and play. We also have an innate knowing towards service to humanity. Altruism in kids is actually beat out of us. It's generally socialized out of us around the age of six. So we go from very giving. I know that the the large narrative is that kids are super selfish, but actually kids, when they take like a very young kids, when they take a bite of their cookie or whatever, their next reaction is, mommy, you try. Because they have this like very giving altruism. And we teach kids, just like you were saying, we make them take this test on their own. And are you surprised then in this very like, I'm teaching you to just forget about everybody else. It doesn't even matter if you're a good person, if you're a nice person, if you're a dick. It just matters that you ace this test. So then are you surprised that we have a bunch of really smart people in the world who are greedy a-holes? Like, are you surprised? We literally, K-12, we're teaching people to do that. So what I have been doing over the last six months is really questioning the purpose of education in its entirety. Starting with Anna's question about how do you expect me to care about the Pythagorean theorem and seeing, okay, it's not just about learning the content. It's about learning the content so that you can understand your world so that you can do something about it. And then the final step of that for me, as I was looking at these kids in the affluent school in Chile, it's not just about service to the world one day, someday. It's about doing it now. So in my evolution of teaching and what I believe is going to lead an education revolution is actually taking what it is that we're learning in the world of education and we're doing it to give students from the age of five an opportunity to give back, to be of service, to connect with other human beings. Because these are lessons that adults finally learn. Some learn, not all learn. Many go through the corporate world, They go through life experiences and at some point along the way realize that really the magic sauce in life has to do with three things. It has to do when we are serving others. Okay, we know that being a part of a similar community and constantly wanting to give back. And I know you're huge on, I mean, I've experienced your generosity and altruism is you're always about serving other people. So we know that that's really what leads to our fulfillment. We also know it's about love, connection, and oneness, seeing that we are all one in essence. If you can't feel that and experience that, then everything ends up being for kind of an external reward. It doesn't come from within of like literally my cells vibrate to the same frequency as yours. We are one. And the third key kind of pillar of all this is that innate knowing that you have a divine blueprint within you, as I do. And we each have something very unique to give the world. And that particular thing is beat out of us in these standardized systems. Versus there are charter schools, for example, or very uh, alternative schools. I actually just met with a director who started one here in Austin, Texas, where it's all about seeing helping a student grow that let it blossom, and then let that lead their path to service. 
their path to like helping others experience oneness. So if we can bring those three things into schools, the cultivating that innate oneness, or sorry, that innate knowing as opposed to beating it out of them, helping them experience that oneness as opposed to socializing them otherwise, and then helping them be of service now, that is going to massively, now the structure of the school, that can take many different forms. And some schools are doing that great. Some schools are way behind. That can take a lot of different forms. But if we can keep those as our key pillars, we are going to not only have more intrinsic motivation. When I started doing that in my class, I didn't have student engagement problems. I didn't have behavior problems. The kid who hated math class suddenly is like, Miss, can you tutor me at lunch? I really want to do this so that I can like, so ultimately her whole thing, I did a whole social entrepreneurship project where the kids created businesses. They, I raised money for them to, you know, have some capital to start with. They created a prototype. They did a whole pitch competition. They made a whole business portfolio. And then ultimately they got to be entrepreneurs, not someday, one day, not when they're 25, when they're 15 in my class, they got a taste of that. And it's addictive. When you get a taste of serving others, you realize that is the secret to life. Like, that's what I want to do. And I'll, before I, I stop kind of sharing this particular segment, I, um, I want to just share one quick little story. I uh, consult for a guy who actually was a VP of um, Google for 17 years. So he worked at Google for 17 years as a vice president. So as you can imagine, this is kind of like the pinnacle of what we call success in America. He's the guy who created the AI for Google Workspace. So all of our Google Docs, like this guy created. So you might imagine, like, what more could this guy want? He's literally achieved the max. And he decided to leave Google after 17 years, I mean, on great terms, and he decided he wanted to create an education company. Why? When I spoke to him, he said, my one most fulfilling moment in these 17 years that I worked at Google was the day I went and visited the school that we donated Chromebooks to. And the kids were telling me how that impacted their lives. So screw education just being getting a bunch of smart people who are getting a bunch of money because you and I both know once you arrive, you're like, damn, why do I feel so empty inside? So if we could backwards map, what is that feeling of fulfillment? And ultimately, like I said, I've broken it down to those three pillars. You're using your innate knowing, your divine blueprint to cultivate oneness and to be of service to others. If you can backwards map, okay, then what do we do in kindergarten? to foster that. Then we don't have to have people who are committing suicide at 55. They have the Ferrari, they have the house, they have the wife, they have the kids, but they're like, why do I feel so empty? We don't have to have the people who are just lost and confused constantly. So then that's kind of been my journey and ultimately what I call leading an education revolution and why I started the company Educate With Purpose, because we have to go back and question, why are we doing any of this? And what kind of world, what kind of human beings, what ultimate goal are we striving for? That was amazing. <laughs> uh, have you ever heard of the saying, it's not about content, it's about context? Mm, I haven't, but I like it. Yeah, so... It applies to literally almost everything in life. 
including education, where the con like you could show let like let's we're on a podcast now. Mm-hmm. I could say one thing, and if I'm in a classroom of fifty five different people, mm-hmm. kids in front of me, they're all going to hear it differently. Yeah, they're going to hear it how they want to hear it based on the predisposition they have to the story that I just told. The issue with having fifty five kids in a room is you can't individually give them 55 different stories Mm. context to make them understand how the Pythagorean theorem Mm. applies to their life Mm. so like for the girl that you mentioned the very beginning of this podcast the way that I would give her context of like why should I care about this Mm. is I would ask well how did it make you feel to go through that Mm. and then she's going to be like I don't like this Mm. I was like okay well how can we change that Mm -hmm. well Pythagorean theorem is math Mm -hmm. math could change your life so that you don't never have to deal with that again and even Mm -hmm. more so you're like aligning to the three pillars that you have Mm -hmm. not only could you help yourself but what if we could help you help other girls not have to experience this and then that child and their curiosity attaches to that context of that story of I'm battling to get to school every day and basically slaying dragons left and right to learn math to eventually help me and other girls not have to deal with this. Now, as a teacher, that's it's fucking impossible Mm -hmm. because if you have 55 of that, it's impossible. And that's where I love that you mentioned like AI and the guy from Google because Technology like that does allow us mm. to be more contextual mm. at scale. Like it allows teachers to scale and understand like, especially I, one thing that you said where it's like these conferences are the same as they were 15 years ago. I've never been back <laughs> to my town's like schooling system mm. on purpose Yeah, because I'm scared to walk through those doors and see the exact same thing that I saw 15 years ago. Because right. I know it hasn't changed. Yeah. When they could be using technology, simple as this, I sent you a Google form mm-hmm. prior to this to understand more of what, what's your vision, what's your mission, what are you trying to do, how can we help you? Mm-hmm. Teachers should be doing that with, like prior to coming into class, like the teacher literally could just send a Google form of like, mm-hmm. what are you passionate about? Mm-hmm. What, what do you struggle with? And then without even having to lift a finger mm-hmm. or even have a conversation, she could understand her students mm-hmm. and what they're struggling with and where they want to go and why they want to go there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guarantee most schools aren't, aren't doing stuff like that. And I really liked how you, you broke all that down, but it made me think. So that was all like, that was beautiful. You painted mm-hmm. a beautiful picture, but I know that it's not going to be easy, mm. that the road to getting there is not going to be easy. What are some of the things that you've had to endure that have been a struggle Mm. in terms of communicating that vision to other teachers, schools, anyone that you're trying to get to believe in educating with more of a purpose? Mm. What kind of barriers have you had to go through or have seen? Yeah. You know, I think the biggest barrier is the victim mindset, the defeatism, the Yeah, but you don't understand. It's just we have so many mandates. Bro, I was a teacher in those. So if anybody understands, I get it. And I've taught in all all the types of schools. So I get it. 
And yes, you are going to have to stand up for change and be go against the, the norm. I mean, I almost got fired multiple times because my conviction for what I'm doing is so much more important than just getting a pat on the back by an administrator to say, good job, you met the standards. In fact, when you do what is aligned and right, all those other things fall into place. My kids performed the best on the standardized test. Did I teach to the test? Did I prepare them for the test? Hell no. I made learning matter. I learned about my students, similar to that kind of this um, Google form. Mine was a little bit more old fashioned. I had the students write me a letter at the beginning of the year and give mm. me kind of their whole history. Tell me like, how do you feel about math class? Because math is like the dentist of education, right? Like most people are like petrified to come in that class or yeah. you love, or you love math class. So it's usually one or the other, but so much of what you're doing as a math teacher is on having them unlearn <laughs> their association with like, this is terrifying, right? Or this makes me feel like a failure or this is threatening my progress in education because they use math class as kind of that um, in third grade. If you don't do well in math, you're going in this direction, uh, you know, kind of like on a lower track versus the higher track. So it's really at that point, third and fifth grade, they kind of decide which way you're going. And then there's the school to prison pipeline. And a lot of that is based on your math class. So not doing well in math has very high stakes for a lot of people. So anyway, I digress. But the point being is that there's so many teachers who are just, they're exhausted and they're beat down and they feel this chokehold from the system of, you know, I can't push the boundaries. Now, it's not just in education. And this is, I feel like I've, I, you know, it's been such a blessing for me on my journey. I taught for 10 years and then I was working in ed tech for six years, these past six years. And so many of the same, you know, individualism versus the teamwork, um, the Pythagorean theorem thing, not really having like true context in what I'm doing. A lot of that was happening in tech too. A lot of the, well, you just have to hit these metrics no matter how unethically we get there. <laughs> you know, so the lack of hol holistic, a holistic approach it's evident in almost every field. I mean, the healthcare system. I mean, like we could go. So today we're really focusing on education. But I, I actually think that all the things that we're talking about and questioning the purpose of any of it and really looking at this particular, there's kind of this saying that says um, it looks right, but does it feel right? That's something I've personally struggled with a lot in my life. Just, you know, from the outside, everyone thinks my life is perfect, right? And you and I were just talking about health. Like, you know, like you might look really healthy on the outside, but what's actually happening internally? And that could be physically internally. That could be spiritually or emotionally internally. That could be psychologically internally. So this is happening across so many different fields. And ultimately, I think that, you know, my biggest challenge here has been for us to be able to think bigger than that survival mentality of, oh no, but I'm going to get fired. Okay, then get fired and see what beautiful doors open up when you follow your why. Why are you on this planet? And what really got me, so I actually got laid off from um, one of the companies that I was working at and that's what led me down this path. I asked myself, so as you can imagine getting laid off, I was just like, I was a mess. I was like, crying. I was in disbelief. And I just got on my yoga mat 
and I went into child's pose. I was actually going to go through and like delete everything in my Google Drive. And I'm like, screw them. They don't get my stuff. You know, like I was so upset. And instead, I just, I surrendered. I closed my, my laptop. I was like, let them have it. That's my gift to you. And I laid down on my yoga mat. I went into child's pose and I just, I prayed. I said, God, I don't know why this is happening. I don't know why it feels like everything is crumbling in that same week. You know, I was dating someone that kind of fell apart. My housing situation, I thought was more long-term that I was informed. You got to be out in like a week. And then this was happening with my work. And I literally was like, okay, you have my attention. This means that my, my canvas is clearing out, becoming a blank canvas because I've got something bigger to give the world. So I asked God, like, what is it? What is it that you want me to be doing? And it, I think it's that letting things fall apart and trusting that something greater can come out of what seems like the world is falling apart. And a lot of teachers, I mean, frankly, schools in general, they can't do that. They're holding on so tight to a system that's not serving us. And when I see the education system falling apart, I'm like, good, finally let it freaking crumble so that something more magical and beautiful can emerge because we can't just keep putting band-aids on top of a broken system. So that's been one of my biggest challenges looking at the, working with the education system is how attached, how much control people want to just have holding on to something that they know is failing, but they don't have trust that this journey that all of us are on is mystical. There are parts we can't tangibly understand or know the outcome. And we've got to have a certain level of faith that if you can get centered in your why and your purpose and actually have, look at your own as a teacher, your innate knowing, your sense of oneness with others, love and connection and your service to others. If you can have true alignment to that, then you can detach and you can let go and say, yeah, I think we do need to scrap this and start over, much like many startups are, right? Like agile, nimble, they're like fail fast, let's go again. But I mean, they have such a brick edifice that they're just like, I can't, I don't want one brick to fall out. So that's been the biggest resistance. Faith over fear. I love that you brought up the fear. You responded to getting laid off a little bit differently than I <laughs> responded to getting laid okay. off. Okay. I went and partied in Toronto and lost one of my teeth <gasps> oh. in a club. <laughs> but I ended up in Texas because almost because I got around the time that I got laid off because that's when I reached out to Aaron. But um, I love that you use that context because it's something that – man, if you – if you haven't gotten fired or laid off from a job, if you're listening to this, you're not pushing the needle like that. Like, so for me, I walked in on a Monday and I was working for an agency at the time. Uh, so it was contracted and the contract agency never told me that this was my last week. My in my on the floor manager was supposed to say like, this is your last week. So I email him like on the Monday because the, the agency had emailed me like, oh, congratulations on your last week, blah, blah, blah. This is the wrap up, whatever. And I was going into the week like it's a normal week, going to get paid for the next couple months uh, and roll on with my life. And it ended up – I emailed the on-the-floor manager like, oh, yeah, I forgot. Mm. So I was like, 
all right, fuck you, guy. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I have to take the rest of this day to figure out what I'm going to do. And it was funny because uh, that was right before I ended up moving to Nashville. And I had like a gap of two or three months that I was supposed to be at this job. Mm-hmm. And ended up like working at U-Haul just for, nice. for shits and giggles. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just driving trucks and whatever. <laughs> um, the reason I'm telling this story is I learned how to drive like trucks and trailers then. And now that I have the sauna and my mm. truck, that experience that I never would have had if I didn't get – I mean, there's way bigger things that also happened in my life then, but like I'm trying to show a little dot that you connect where what happened to me, I didn't, I was like, whatever, like keep it moving. And I think a lot of people are so afraid of the failure, which is conditioned Mm. from the education system of if I fail this test, my life is over. If I fail the SAT, if I do this, my life is over. And it comes down to, I think what you described there of, that left path or that right path. Like we are dictating paths. Yeah. That is like the most ass for an education system where you're supposed to be like thinking a little bit more logically. That is the most asinine thing I've ever Mm. seen because like one little test or even one grade or even one year, Mm -hmm. like there's shit that happens at home where it could fuck up your entire year as a kid. Mm. That's not going to determine the outcome of your life. Yeah. And we're putting pressure on these kids as if like, like you had mentioned when you were, you were human, Mm -hmm. my class matters as the teacher. So it stems from the teacher. And this Mm -hmm. is where the the last part of this conversation, I want to shift into the next couple of minutes of what could the system be doing better for teachers? Mm Because I'm a believer that one, the system, like as a systems engineer, you don't build a new bridge on top of a broken bridge. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. You just knock the bridge down and Mm -hmm. then build a bridge a new one right next to it. Mm -hmm. The only way that's going to happen is if internally teachers are like, we're done Mm -hmm. because if we don't have teachers, what's going to happen? Like there's no one to teach the kids and that's happening and that's happening. So I'm I'm seeing the domino effect where teachers, the best people are just leaving and nobody is going to college to be teachers anymore. Why am I going to take on debt Mm -hmm. for a 50 K a year job? Mm -hmm. I'm not going to do it when I could probably just be a tutor and make 100K a year, mm-hmm. right? So that's what's happening. But what's the new system for that? Because mm-hmm. we've been talking a lot about the kids here, which I love. Mm-hmm. But unless we solve the real problem, which mm-hmm. is we need people that are passionate mm-hmm. about helping our youth, teenagers, and young professionals mm-hmm. be educated with purpose, yeah. what does that system look like? It's a really great question. And actually, that's why in my company, Educate with Purpose, I've chosen to not focus on teachers. I actually work with school and district administrators. Mm. So teachers are leaving in droves because they're no longer fulfilled, right? Generally, a teacher's very fulfilled, even making 50 grand a year. They're very fulfilled because they feel like their life is making a difference in in the world, right? They can tangibly see a child transform throughout the year and the the, the gratification in that is just like astronomical right but now that is no longer having that pull every based on everything we went through in the pandemic and admin just having like a stronger chokehold with mandates they're having all these pressures from the state so i've been working with leaders first to shift the purpose of everything they're doing why are we doing this? So until we question why, I don't care what system you keep shifting in this 
broken system, it's not going to make a difference if you can't be held accountable for the why. Why are we doing anything we're doing? Simon Sinek says we're drawn to organizations and people for their why. We've lost that in this entire narrative. So working with leaders to first like tap into their own humanity. What have so many of the leaders done instead of getting vulnerable, right? We know the strongest leaders are vulnerable. That's a, um, you know, kind of a symbol of true strength and leadership. But instead they're like, no, well now I'm going to give you a bunch more mandates and now you've got to, you know, submit this. And teachers are just like, I'm done. I can't. Like they've hit their limit of what it is that they're, you know, that what kind of that strangulation they're willing to put up with to do the thing that they're passionate about. I love this concept where it says students enter as question marks to the school system and they leave as periods. What if students entered as question marks and left as question marks? And now look at teachers. Teachers, God, when I started teaching as a 22-year-old, the hope, the passion, the empowerment that I'm going to make a difference in the world no teacher freaking gets in the field of education to, to write out standard 12.2 and students will learn and then make sure they, did you know there are like seven different centers of a triangle? I sure as hell didn't until I was a geometry teacher and it was like so imperative that I taught seven freaking centers of a triangle. Who the F cares? Nobody cares. Who's going to, like, I don't even remember that. And I taught it for 10 years, right? I don't remember that. I don't remember, you know, what they're called or how to get them. Or how they apply to life. Or They, <laughs> they absolutely don't apply to life. And the, the standard rigor, so in, as a teacher, I always question, like, why do I have to teach this? And my department head would say, well, it's on the SAT. And thankfully, for example, in California, a lot of the schools have actually gotten rid of um, the the kind of requirement to take the SAT. So we're going in the right direction of like a test determining our fate and our outcome and our path and our trajectory. So there is actually a lot of really hopeful movement. Um, but essentially, when we think of this concept of coming in as a question mark and leaving as a period, we're not just doing that to students, we're doing that to teachers. When were teachers really invited to come in with their passion and let that bloom and take off? And so I look to school and district leaders. What are you so afraid of? Losing control? What are you so afraid of? Students not performing so well on standardized tests so that you don't get funding? Because that's really, it all comes money back to talks money. And bullshit it, all, talks. it all comes back to money. And I work with some leads who have their superior leads basically saying, we don't really care what's happening behind the closed doors. You just have to make sure you've checked these boxes because we have to turn that into the state and that's how we get money. So people have just lost sight of hope, opt optimism, passion, and ultimately their why of why they got in this field. And the more we do that, we're going back down on Maslow's hierarchy of needs and we're just like, Ugh, you have to do it like this because. So until we you know, stop the clock and say, and, and really, we can't stop the clock. But if we can just pause everybody for a moment and say, why are we, why the F are we doing any of it? And if we can't have that honest conversation and really get to the humanity, that vulnerability of those leaders, it's a lost cause because the teachers, they, they want to believe. They want that. Not everyone is willing to put their, their job on the line and 
lose it because they have a family potentially to take care of. So it's kind of this um, toxic cycle that really begins with those leaders. Yeah, I never really went down the rabbit hole of like who controls a district, Mm. but I always, I'm a business guy. I know money talks and that's where I'm, where I do have faith and hope is I'm starting to see, you mentioned ed tech and tech companies. Mm -hmm. We're living in a more entrepreneurial environment just across the world. Mm -hmm. The internet has unlocked that and companies are starting not to care whether you have a degree or don't have a degree. So it, it's, it's really just the trickle down effect. The schools do the SATs because the SATs make money and the SATs pay the schools. Like it's mm-hmm. just like big pharma, big healthcare. Totally. Like it's money. And like the schools where kids are dropping out, um, we're not incentivizing the kids to show up, but mm-hmm. the schools want the kids to show up because that's tax dollars. So it's mm-hmm. just like these incentivizations are just not there. And then as a teacher, like what is the incentive to show up and almost kill yourself mm-hmm. for 50K, mm-hmm. right? So it's just like once the incentivizations start realigning, mm-hmm. and I think to wrap this up, I really like this conversation. When you mentioned your pillars and like I thought service, it's we like in schools, like you have an army of, mm-hmm. of hands and, and minds, right? You literally, even if you spent, one hour a week where all 300 students are giving back just to their own school. Right. What is the changes of that? Like, hey, we're going to clean up the school every Friday at 10 a.m. Every student. Yeah. From outside to inside to whatever. Like the trickle down effect of just that. Or we're, we're going to create some type of give back to ourselves. Mm-hmm. What would just be the scale of that? And that's what gets my head spinning is just the pillars that you've listed out, mm-hmm. how do you articulate that to administrators mm-hmm. to understand that I think the issue with society is we always want to shoot for home runs mm-hmm. and they don't understand that like even just a little change right, could be massive across the board. And that's one of my big takeaways here today. But we're getting close to wrapping up here. We're at 58 minutes. This was such an inspiring conversation. I literally could go another hour or two um, talking about this. Maybe we will uh, in the in the future. I'd love to hear more about how this is going with you and how I can be support uh, supportive of that. Um, but last thing that I always ask is I love to connect people mm. and – if someone listens to this and is passionate about education, passionate about your story, looking to get connected mm-hmm. with you, what is the best way for them to reach out to you? Yeah, thanks for asking. So my website, educatewithpurpose.com, and in the contact section, there's a place where you know someone can fill it out and submit a form to get in touch. So E-D-U-C-A-T-E with purpose.com. What are you in need of right now? Because maybe someone's listening and is like, oh, I'd love to support, mm. but I don't know exactly what, what she needs in this moment. So here's yeah. your time to. Thanks for also asking that. So I'm in need of educational leaders who are not afraid, who are excited to lead an education revolution. Whether it's you have, you're a director of a school and you're excited to, you know, this is going to be the year where 
I'm going to loosen that grip and really question why and you're ready to go on that journey. Or you're founding an education organization. It could be ed tech. It could be any other so a curriculum company. And you want to make sure kind of those pillars are woven within everything that you do because even ed tech companies have become corrupt real fast, right? Um, so anybody who feels like they are a leader in education, whatever that looks like, I would love to have a conversation. I would love to serve them so that we can really start to make those tangible changes. And I love that example you gave around community service. I mean, really, sometimes it just takes that one shift. And now imagine if every student was doing that every Friday and that's how we started the day. Think about the narrative of what service feels like and feels like and looks like instead of it being a punishment. In most schools, community service is, hey, you vandalized this, you got community service hours. And we know as adults, like ultimately service is our ultimate joy. But it takes us so long to figure that out because we were trained our whole lives that, ooh, if you have to pick up trash after school, you're in trouble. So thinking about how some of those small shifts could be make made to have a huge impact. And I'd love to serve others to start to, you know, get that ball rolling. I love how you put that. If that's you, please reach out to Mona. She is a beam of light and I'd love for y'all to connect. But the last question that I ask everybody, if I were to ask you, what does thriving mean to you? Mm. How would you respond? Mm. I just see like rocks in this barren land and a flower kind of blooming. I don't know if you've ever seen this in real life, a flower blooming between the cracks of rocks where there's no other vegetation. So despite the struggle, the unlikely circumstances, there's still being hope and life and aliveness. To me, that's thriving. Wow. That's cool. I'm going to have to paint a picture like that. Yes. This episode. <laughs> it's interesting that you say that because I have two, I have succulents on my arm. Oh. And one of the reasons I have succulents is they can, like, if you look up the definition of them and what they stand for, they can thrive in, I forget what they use, the adjective they used before, like crazy environments, like without water, like mm. they could survive and, and outlast and endure. And I was like, that's the exact type of plant mm -hmm. that I want. Uh, to be tattooed on me is something that can endure. Mm. And I think going back to this whole conversation at the end, I always talk about like what my, my big takeaway is. And I think in terms of education and educating with a purpose and just going back to the very beginning where you're telling that story of that girl, mm. Education matters to her because she lives a life where she's going to have to endure. And if she can endure, she's actually going to be a great leader for this world. 100%. And that's something that doesn't get spoken enough in schools is like most of the best leaders have endured some of the at most outlandish experiences that they had to overcome and endure. Mm -hmm. And it creates a sense of, awareness, empathy, kindness that those arrogant a-holes that you're mentioning that are just handed handed everything and just taught to get the grades, mm -hmm. they never have to endure that. So when they get into leadership roles, it's just toxic cycle mm -hmm. versus that girl is the leaders that we need where if we can create an education system that contextually teaches kids 
why they should endure the mm-hmm. experiences that they're going through and the power mm-hmm. that they have within those experiences, our world is going to ultimately change for the better. And you and I both know that struggle is a gift, right? So I actually have a whole section in my program about the gift of struggle. And the last thing I'll say is I actually what I helped out with working with students who were orphans and how orphans actually make the best entrepreneurs. And so teaching students and helping them see that actually your struggle is going to help you be that leader that you talk about. I mean, they have so many skills of already being completely alone, not having any support. We know the entrepreneurship journey is like you against yourself. I mean, an orphan has to deal with that from childhood. That's amazing. Right? So that's just like one example how actually – like, don't feel sorry for yourself for having these struggles. They are your gifts. That's your brightest light in the making. But it's how do we capitalize on that? And that's what the education system can help students see. Instead of, you were saying about grades, and this is a whole part two. But yeah, I mean, gosh, there's so much potential. There's so so much we could do with the system to help people thrive. Boom. That's where we're ending Thank you so much. If you listen to this episode, the best thing that you can do for Mona and I is to share it with somebody that you know that loves education as much as we do, or maybe even share it with a student because I'd love for them to hear this and be inspired to go on their own path, their own journey, and start questioning their teachers on how they are getting taught because this is a two, uh, there's two ends to this spectrum, and we want to change it as best as we can. My name is CJ Finley. Until next time, this is Thrive on Life Podcast. Thrive on, y'all. What's up, y'all? This is CJ again. And on behalf of the small team here at Thrive on Life, I'd like to thank you for listening to one of our episodes. Our mission in life is to help people like you fuel your passion and make every heartbeat count. And we realize the best way to do this is together as a team. So we'd love for you to join in on this mission and connect with like-minded individuals within our Thrive on Life community. To do so, please head to thriveonlife.com and connect with us there. We'd love to chat with you. Before I sign off, I'd like you to always remember one thing. When we strive together, we thrive together. So please do your part in helping others thrive on life.